You're listening to a message from Victory Christian Center in Farmer City, Illinois. For more information on Victory, please contact us at vccfarmercity.org. All right, well, welcome to church this morning. We are going to continue in the series. We are studying about growing up. But we're talking about growing up and developing on the inside, growing up and developing in a sense, spiritual development, not in a sense, in reality, <laughs> spiritual development, growing on the inside. So I want to go back to our core text. Uh, let's go to Ephesians chapter four, and I'm just going to read a few verses starting in verse 11. He says, and he himself gave some to be apostles and some prophets, and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect, mature man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro, carried about with every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men in cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. But, can I say rather... Speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ. So he's talking about growing up and that we all need to no longer be children, but that we grow up into these things. So just very quickly, and not really a review, but kind of, in uh, the first message, we just focused on being spirit-minded and recognizing that we do have a spirit on the inside of us. We are spirit um, we talked in the second message about characteristics of the undeveloped spirit, and we kind of compared to the to the infant or babyhood stage of natural development. And then for the third message, we talked about food for our spirit man. And in the fourth message, we talked about keys to developing, and we learned that uh, God's word coming in feeds, but God's word going out our mouth is one of the ways we exercise and develop, and that we develop by doing You don't develop in anything that you don't do. And so there's a lot of developing by doing. Today I'm back to my comparison. We're going to move up a little bit in development. And we're going to look at children. And we're going to talk about some things about the children age. Um, we're, We're now out of the toddler years, kind of, but not yet teenagers. We're in that children elementary age. We're going to see some common things we see in children that we can then compare to our own spiritual growth and see things. What I'm trying not to do is not my intention. This is not a parenting message for children. That's not really what I'm trying to accomplish. And I'm even trying to resist going down that kind of a path. That's not my goal. I simply want to learn from that age and say, what can I apply to myself? What can we apply then to our spiritual development and recognize as we go through those same stages then spiritually speaking? In 1 Corinthians 13, 11, the Apostle Paul said that when I was a child, I spoke as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put childish or I put away childish things. And so... Those are things we can see in our own selves as we grow. You should be able to analyze and look at your own life and maybe go back the last couple of years and see where you were with God versus where you are today and recognize my speech has changed. One of the indicators that we're growing is our speech changes. 
Um, what else did he say? Our understanding changes. We begin to understand some things we didn't understand before. And uh, then we begin to think differently. Our thinking changes. If we're doing this properly, we should think more the way God thinks today than we did a couple years ago. We're continually thinking more and more the way he thinks and less and less the way we used to think. It's just all part of growing up. So I want to look at characteristics of children. I have a few we'll look at. Um, the first one will correlate easily with the last couple of messages, and that would be when it comes to speaking. Um, children do not control their tongue. In fact, we have a saying, and I've actually, wasn't there at one time an entire TV show along these lines where children say the darndest things? <laughs> And they do, and we've all heard stories. I bet every mom and dad in the room has stories of things that their kids said when they were young. I have one I will share. This goes back a little ways, and so, you know, Lauren probably doesn't even remember this. But she was five when we had this conversation. Um, if you do remember, I'm kudos to you. Because that's a couple of years ago she slept since then. But at one time when she was five, I don't know what led up to this conversation, but I wrote it down later. She looked at me and said, she said, Dad, you have a big butt. <laughs> now, I don't, I, she, okay, you don't remember saying this. The, there's a shock on her face. Hold on, sweetie, it gets better. <laughs> Because I don't remember saying anything, but apparently you say what a look is worth a thousand words or something like that. Apparently my look was shock because now she's trying to recover and she says, well, you have a daddy butt (laughs) like your big belly. This is not getting better. And she realizes this is not getting better. And so as her recovery, she says, well, at least I didn't say you're fat. <laughs> and I'm, but at that age, words just come out. And thoughts just come right out. Although I do find it interesting, looking back, that obviously... Things just came out unfiltered, but even at five, then she says, well, at least I didn't say, which tells me even at five, she's beginning to recognize there's things I don't say. I don't call dad fat. That would be bad. You know, she's still learning. There's guidelines on what you say and what you don't say, even at five, you know, but you recognize just because you think something doesn't mean you say it. Just because you feel something doesn't mean you say it. You learn as you grow that you don't say everything. There would be some people, um, you've probably heard this, I've heard this, there have been people who say something like this, wow, I'm just the type person that speaks my mind. I'm just the kind of person that I say it the way it is. And they'll say that almost braggingly. Not realizing, what are they really saying? I'm not mature. I don't control my words. They're telling off on themselves and they don't realize it. Can I just remind you, we're becoming more like Jesus, right? Um, Romans, I believe it's chapter 4, it's in that area. 
um, it doesn't say that God is the God who calls things the way they are. He doesn't just say it the way he sees it. He doesn't say it the way it is. What does God do? It says he is the God who calls those things that be not as though they are. What He uses his words to say not the way it is, but the way he wants it to be. He'll use his words to say it the way it needs to be. And then he'll watch his words change it. So if we're becoming more like him, then we don't just say it the way it is. We say it the way God wants it to be. All right, we use our words. So as you grow, you begin to realize speech changes. I'll give you a couple quick verses. Uh, Proverbs 13, 3. He who guards his mouth preserves his life. But he who opens wide his lips shall have destruction. Talking about filters. Uh, Proverbs 10, 19. In the multitude of words, sin is not lacking. But he who restrains his lips is wise. One more, Proverbs fifteen twenty eight out of the New Living says, The heart of the godly thinks carefully before speaking. The mouth of the wicked overflows with evil words. So what, what's that saying? Uh, your heart should rule your mouth. I see that in that third verse. It says the heart of the godly thinks carefully before he lets the mouth say something what he's thinking about, what's appropriate, what's not appropriate, what should I say. Words come out on purpose, not just because they popped in there somewhere. So there's the first characteristic of children. As we begin to grow spiritually, you'll begin to see my speech changes. Things I used to say, I don't say anymore. Or using my words to direct something, to change something in a situation or in a person. Words are powerful. You can do a lot to people, both directions, with words. So you learn to use words the right way and edify people to cause change in people. Well, that's one thing. Let's go to number two. Um, children are not self-disciplined. And there are lots of examples you could use. Um, one I think of, um, sleep routines. Children typically do not put themselves to bed. They will stay up as long as you let them. In fact, in, when they were young in, in our house, they would just run until they ran out and crashed. And then wherever they were when they crashed, that's where they fell asleep. Wasn't necessarily in bed or even on the couch. I'm thinking, we have a, a small collection of pictures in our house of where we just walked in one time and found a daughter in the strangest place, sound asleep. There's one in and out of a coffee table somehow. And I mean, just it's dollhouse. I don't know. Wherever they happen to be when they crashed, that's where we found them. And they don't have enough self-discipline to recognize, I need to go to bed. I need sleep. Uh, likewise, maybe you'll relate to this one, uh, getting up in the morning. They don't want to get up in the morning, especially on school days. And so we have to, that, that was my job. Crystal had a different morning routine, so I made that my routine in the morning. <laughs> She's working on getting herself up. But I would work on getting the kids up. And time to get up. Got to get ready for school. Got to get them moving. Okay, now do this and be sure to get dressed and let's get this going. And so that we get out the door on time, we get to school, which we mostly get done. <laughs> Some mornings are a challenge. But... The interesting thing to me 
is that I could go day after day after day trying to get them up and they don't want to get up and I'm being dad and I'm drawing lines of discipline and get them moving until field trip day. All of a sudden, they jump out of bed with a smile on their face. They're ready to get things moving because it's field trip day. There's something different about it. It always amazed me. I actually got to a point when I recognized, oh, one of my daughters has a field trip tomorrow. Huh, that'll be easy getting them up. <laughs> I'd be like, yay, I'm going field trip day because I don't have to work at it so hard. Why? They don't want to get up either. Um, let's think. Oh, I had an, uh, uh I thought I had a couple of those. Oh, uh, eating habits. How, how many times has kids that they don't want to eat what they need to eat or what would give good fuel and nutrition to their body, they'd rather eat what tastes good. They want to eat candy or cookies or cake or whatever tastes good or french fries, <laughs> you know. I eat less and less of those. But that's a whole other story. So what do you have to do as a parent? You have to draw boundaries of discipline. Okay, here's what you need to eat. You get this done, we'll have a little bit of the other. You know, but what are you thinking? They need the nutrition. They need these things in their body. And they're at an age where they don't think about those things, don't even care about those things. One more quick example. How about study habits? How many kids do their homework on their own because they want to? Okay, there may be a couple. Praise God. I'm so jealous. Now, it varies, but especially at a younger age, you know, sometimes even at teenager years, don't want to do homework. That's not fun. But what what needs to happen if you're going to make it all the way through school? So parents draw lines of discipline. You need to do your homework. Have you got this done? You follow up on it. Why? Because they're not doing it on their own. Well, there's a clear spiritual parallel. We don't have to think too hard. How many of us are good with the Christian disciplines? How many of us discipline ourselves? You know what's really sad? There are adults who still can't get themselves to bed on time. And they stay up far too late. There are adults who can't get themselves up in the morning and get to work on time. Now, we haven't even started on spiritual disciplines yet. These are natural disciplines you're supposed to learn as a child. So that as an adult, you have a responsibility, you know, get to bed on time. Body needs rest. Get up on time. Got to get to work. Maybe even get up in time with time enough to eat breakfast, a healthy food before you go to work. How many people it's, I mean, pillow, bathroom, out the door, you know? I mean, guys don't typically do this, but how many ladies are doing their makeup on the interstate, you know? Some, maybe none of you, but what was that? planning time appropriately. So then Christian disciplines, how many of us have had to train ourselves, read my Bible every day, you know? And and for me, I've seen over the course of my life, because the Bible kind of says some things about um, doing things early and doing things late, doing things in the first part of your day and then the last few things you do before you go to bed at night and how many of those times we give God those times. We want him to be the first, first, I don't want to say the first thing we think about, but the first person we talk to as we wake up, the last person we talk to as we go to bed. You know, I, I've even, I've done this some, but I know some people that the minute they come into consciousness before their feet hit the floor, before they head to the bathroom, they say good morning to the Holy Ghost. 
They want God to be the first conversation they have every day. See, the Bible talks about first fruits and first things. And it does matter what you do first. Now, for a lot of people, it's either the bathroom or the coffee maker. But I see a lot of that in Scripture. So I know in my own life, I when I was a young man, I was not a morning person. I was the stereotypical teenager. I loved staying up late. I did not like getting up in the morning. Now, I did manage... I would be the guy to get myself out of bed. I was not late to work. But I was not always fully rested when I got to work either. And that was just, just immaturity. But as I grew, I, I got to thinking, um, I was reminiscing even in adult life when I was working on the farm. Um, there was many years there where, where uh, in the fall I would pick uh, corn over in western Illinois. And it was about an hour away. And so we would get a camper and set it up over there because if you could stay locally instead of driving an hour to work and driving an hour home, that adds two hours back to your day. And in our case, that was two hours of sleep. Because if you're only getting five, six, seven hours of sleep a night anyway, two hours makes a difference, right? But I, um, the person I went with all, the, all those years was named Dwayne. And I remember after, I don't know how many harvests we did together, he looked at me one day and says, I've just learned about you. And I said, learn what? And he says, I learned not to talk to you in the morning. <laughs> he said, I just learned to give you some quiet time. He said, when you were ready to talk, you'd talk to me, and I knew it was good to go. But I knew not to talk to you before you were really awake. And I, apparently it was after I started eating breakfast because I, he would not say anything to me until I got some cereal in me. <laughs> and he, but he said that one time and I'm like, huh, I hadn't really thought about my own self that way, but he was onto something, you know, but then as I progressed, I learned to train myself to get up and make devotion time. My first thing I do. And I would start reading my Bible first thing in the morning. And I would get up early enough to be able to do that before all of the other morning things that had to happen. And as time went on, I got to where that got easier and easier. And even to where it got enjoyable. Where there was, there's something about, to this day now, I would tell you, and this is me, I am not making a rule. I am not saying until you do this, you are not spirit. I'm not saying that at all. But for me, there is something precious about having quiet time with the Lord before the sun comes up. I, I can't explain it. And if, and if that's not your experience, I'm not putting guilt on anyone. That's between you and the Lord. But I was, if you'd have told me that when I was in my twenties, I don't know what I'd have done. Laughed at you? I'm not sure. I would never have predicted that. But as I've grown and done different things, I've come to value that time. It's precious to me. And I'm not saying I always get it done, but I strive for it. It's, it means something. It, it's just disciplines. And it could be reading your Bible, spending time in worship or prayer, or, well, we won't talk about fasting. <laughs> I'm thinking of all the spiritual disciplines that as we grow, we train ourselves to do those things. And as we grow, they even become enjoyable. You, you feel like something's missing if you don't get it. I've heard of people, I've never experienced this, I've heard of people who train their body to go for a run on a regular basis, and then if they don't get it, they, they, they don't feel right. Okay, I've tasted it a little bit, specifically with running. I remember a season of my life where I ran faithfully, and then if I didn't run, I'd miss it. I, so I've tasted it. And it doesn't have to be running, it could be exercise of any type. 
where you train yourself so well you get used to it. But it should be that with that way with our spiritual disciplines, where where we get used to it. Why then do parents do all these things for their children and draw these lines of discipline? Because at that age, they're not qualified to run their own life. Because they've not, not learned to set those boundaries. They have not learned to discipline themselves. So we have to, we have to grow through those things. Here's a third one. And you'll recognize this. A child's priorities and interests tend to be selfish and tend to be petty. Now, don't, don't get excited real quick, but if you've been a parent, you'll, you, you get it. Um, let me define petty. <laughs> of little or no importance, of little or no consequence. Are you with me? Something that's so insignificant that it's almost unworthy of notice. Now, where am I going? I'm thinking of things that when my kids were little, praise God, not today, but when they were younger, their whole world would just come crashing to a halt when the balloon popped. Tears, bawling, great emotion because the balloon popped. And as a parent, you're thinking, not a big deal. We can get more balloons. Balloons are cheap. We can blow up. We can do all kinds of stuff. But no, that was a big, let me tell you, that was a big deal. I, I was thinking of one. This actually, this is kind of the proverbial, but it actually happened to us on a vacation. We were in Florida and I don't remember which daughter, but we all got ice cream. And I, I at least one or more of us had the ice cream cone. And what happens? You're licking too excitedly on that cone and you pop it right off and on the sidewalk it went. And you know what followed? Tears. Oh, that was you. I thought it was one of the daughters. It was my wife. I didn't put that in my notes. So Crystal licked too aggressively on that ice cream. Oh, mercy. Maybe I shouldn't use that as an example anymore. I don't know. Okay, here's one that we experienced that if you had boys, maybe not. Although, the more I think about it, hold on. Um, tears of emotion when the head came off of that Barbie. They come off. We know. And I was thinking that's just a girl issue, but I'm remembering that sometimes those heads came off when the boy cousins came over to play. <laughs> So I'm not pointing any fingers. I don't think any of the boy cousins. Oh, there's a couple here this morning. But uh, I, no, I, I'm, the cousins I'm thinking aren't here this morning. It was a couple different ones. But the point being, yeah, those heads come off. And that was a big deal at our house. You know, but in the grand scheme of things, you know, in, in all the things we deal with in adult life and what's really important in our, in our region or in our nation or around the world or in the Middle East, or with Israel, that balloon is really not of any significance or any consequence. But to the child, oh, that's everything. So I'm not necessarily saying that we tell the child, snap out of it, it's just a stupid balloon. No, it's everything to them. But you step back and you realize that's just where they're at. So then how's that apply to spiritual things? You can recognize a person's spiritual development by watching what gets them upset. What's their world all about? What kind of things does it take to just absolutely trip their trigger 
or push them into a panic or cause them to just, I won't say melt down, but you know, what gets them going? Because the kind of things that get them going is an indicator of where they are in their spiritual development. Now, I'm not saying that they're not genuine. They are. My daughter was genuine in her emotion when that balloon popped and it meant something. But it also told us how old she was. You see what I'm saying? So what kind of things get you going? I'm not going to lay out examples, but you need to ask yourself, what kind of things work me up? I will give you an example that's nice and innocent and doesn't relate to us. This was an example I heard in Bible school. Um, They had a, a, a student, a young lady, who made an appointment with the dean's office, and she had come in to let the dean know she's done. She is dropping out of Bible school, and she's going home. You want to know why? At this time, I don't know if it's changed, because last time I went back there, everything has changed. But when I was there, this is what it looked like. Um, you had several buildings that comprised the Bible school. In the immediate surrounding area was all paved parking lots, you know. But at this time and when I went, there was not enough paved parking lot for everybody. And so on further out in the deeper perimeter, there was gravel parking lots. Well, this is simple, right? If you want to be sure you get to park on the pavement, what do you need to do? Get there a little earlier. The earlier you get to school, the closer you get to park to the doors, the closer you're going to be. And if you're the type of person, you're squeezing in with one minute to go, just rest assured your parking spot is going to be in the gravel lot, and you're going to have a longer walk to the building. Well, this was the case for her. And she wasn't happy about it. Because she was the type lady, praise God for this, she dressed nice for class. It was a requirement. When I went to school, I wore a tie every day. But she dressed nice, and for her, nice meant she had nice shoes. And these nice shoes had heels. And this was not working on this gravel parking lot, because heels, and I understand, heels are a challenge in gravel. And then there's this thing about gravel dust, and it was getting her shoes dirty. And she was not liking this. This was not working for her. Now, I'm thinking, well, get there earlier. (laughs) I don't know. Apparently, that was not an answer for her. Her solution was, clearly, you cannot expect me to walk through gravel in what I'm wearing. So I should be allowed, then, to come up front and park in one of these empty reserved spaces I see Jake shaking his head. Who are those for? That's faculty parking. So who do you think is going to be unhappy when they come to, to work and find someone in their parking spot and maybe they have to go? Yeah, that, that's not going to fly. And so what do you get when you park in faculty parking? A parking ticket. And apparently she had quite a number of them. And so... This was just not working anymore. She explained all this to the dean and said, I'm done. I'm dropping out of school. I'm going home. What do you say to a person in that situation? That's pretty much what the dean said. Don't let the door hit you on the way out. Why? They're not spiritually developed enough yet to be in ministry This is a ministry school. You think everything's just going to be easy and wonderful and a bed of roses? 
don't go into ministry. No. And then to place that kind of a value, she had a higher value on nice shoes than the call of God on her life. Than, than the ministry or, or the price of fulfilling the will of God. See, priorities weren't right. And it was not going to try to explain that to her necessarily. It was just an indicator of where she was. She wasn't ready to be in Bible school. She still had some growing to do. So we've, we were probably all there at one point, but we're not supposed to stay there. So one thing that is an indicator of where you are in your spiritual development, what does it take to get you going? What upsets you? What is your world all about? Those kind of things. Hmm. Okay, well, oh. When I was in Bible school, I went to a church pastored by Willie George. And so he was my pastor for a couple of years. I love this man. And uh, he told the story one time while we were there. I don't know if it was that church or a different church, but he was pastoring. And he told us, he said, almost went through a church split one time, had a civil war brewing in his congregation over a, a, a debated topic. And he says, you know what it was? Breastfeeding versus formula. Now, is that a real issue, especially for a lot of moms? Yeah. And is it okay for you to have strong opinions on that? Absolutely. I will defend your right to have an opinion on that. But is that a faith-deciding issue? Is that a heaven and hell issue? Is there going to be people in hell because they had the wrong opinion on how to feed their baby? No. So is that worthy of a church civil war? No. So, But what was it? It was an indicator of where some of the people were. And that moment to them, it was a real deal. But he had to come in and say, now listen, big picture. Big picture. What's really important here? Are you with me? So it's an indicator of where you are. Number four, kids ask the wrong questions. And this will be kind of a fun one, but here's the first question I'll present because this one ties into a lot of teenagers um, and, and a lot of adults. Many times, this is a wrong question. When someone presented with the scenario and they say, well, what's wrong with it? And fill in the blank. I'm not going to pick any. What's wrong with fill in the blank? The very nature of asking that question is usually an indicator. That's a wrong question. Most of the time, you know what the right question would be? What's right with it? What's right about it? How does it help you? Does it benefit you? What's the gain if you do or don't do that? That would be more of a right question. How does it benefit your walk with God? I'll give you an interesting illustration. This one's kind of fun. I read a book a few years ago, um, several years ago now. It was by uh, Jesse Duplantis, and it was called uh, Heaven, Close Encounters of the God Kind. So if you've read that book, it's his story of, of a trip he had to heaven when he had an experience like the Apostle Paul had in, in Scripture where he had a heaven visit. You can do what you want with that, but it was really enlightening. He said the trip was very humbling. He said there were several times where that very situation, he said, I asked the wrong question. 
And he said, and I learned pretty quick that I'm not as mature as I think I am <laughs> by asking wrong questions. I'll give you a couple examples. One of them, he says, I, I got to meet King David. And he says, got to thinking, what do we have in common? He says, King David was a musical man, played the harp. I was very anointed musician, wrote many of the Psalms in our Bible, which were songs. And he, if you know anything about Jesse Duplantis, he was a rock and roll guitar player before the Lord got a hold of him and he got saved. And he has musical background. Well, so he, he's trying to talk with King David and he says, you play musical instrument. Jesse says, well, I play guitar and I play piano. And then he says, a piano is kind of like a harp. And then he says, I realized real quick, King David looked at me and said, I know what a piano is. And you realize we tend to think, well, if they didn't have pianos in his day, then he wouldn't know what a piano is, right? They're far smarter in heaven than we think they are. They've continued to grow and learn. They know probably, I'm pretty safe, pretty comfortable saying this, they know far more than we do. And he, he had a humbling moment there. He's, oh, sorry. Yeah, of course you do. You know, a second one. He said he had a conversation with Jonah. And this one's interesting because he's thinking if you've ever listened to theologians, they have debated probably in the last several thousand years about what in the world swallowed Jonah. Bible just says a fish. Now, a lot of people aren't satisfied with that and they want to know, well, what kind of fish? Must have been a whale. And they start analyzing the different kinds of whales. Now, which one could this actually happen in? Is it, now, it couldn't be this kind of whale, but maybe that kind of whale. And then there's some people, well, now, it had to be something other than a whale. It couldn't have been a whale. And then there's some people saying it just can't happen. The whole thing's made up. All right, all, all over this debate over Jonah. Okay. So he's got Jonah in front of him. And he's thinking, <laughs> I'm going to settle this. He says, I'm going to come back and I'm going to have the answer. And he asked Jonah, Jonah, what were you in? And he actually wrote this in my notes. Here's a quote from his book. It seemed to me that he hesitated as though he felt discontentment for just a second. I felt that maybe I had brought an unpleasant event to his memory that he'd been allowed to forget. But he said, Jonah corrected me. And he said, I was in disobedience. And he said, I realized I asked the wrong question and missed the entire point of the account in Scripture. The point was he was in disobedience. He went on to say to him, he said, disobedience is a powerful thing against you, not only in this life, but here. He said, God's word must be followed to the letter. Interesting. One more quick one that really does kind of make our point this morning. He says he got to meet the Apostle Paul. And another thing that, uh, that not quite as much as Jonah, but they often study and I don't know if they debate, but they all want to know more about the Apostle Paul. I mean, come on, he's a pretty big New Testament figure and responsible for the majority of it. And they're all like, we want to know everything about this guy, you know? And so they often debate, well, was he married? Was he single? Was he divorced? 
I've, I've heard theologians present the case that when he gave his heart to Jesus and he got born again, his Jewish wife left him and divorced him over it. I can't prove that. I don't even know how, if they ever can prove that. But all these conjecture. What do we know about his personal life? Did he have any kids? All these things. And so all this comes to his mind when he gets to heaven and he sees Jesse. And he asked him, he said, were you, were you married? Were you single? All that. He said, the apostle Paul looked at him and said, how would that help you? He pointed out to him, he said, the Bible is very quiet on those things. It doesn't say a lot about my personal life. Why? It won't help you. He said, focus on the work. He said, don't focus on my personal life. (laughs) It's just, it's those indicators. As you develop and as you grow, you ask better questions, more relevant questions. Sometimes we, we expose our own degree of maturity by the questions we ask. I want to look over in Luke chapter 2. Um, I'm going to read a kind of a long passage here. I'm going to read it out of the New Living just to flow a little easier. There's nothing wrong with the other translations. Um, Luke 2 verse 41 Uh, Every year, Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem for the Passover festival, the Passover feast. When Jesus was 12 years old, they attended the festival as usual. So we're seeing Jesus as a child. And I guess at 12, I can technically say he's not a teenager yet, so we're, we're right at the tail end of childhood, right? After the celebration was over, they started home to Nazareth, but Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents didn't miss him at first because they assumed he was among the other travelers. They they were traveling as a caravan. Uh, But when he didn't show up that evening, they started looking for him among the other relatives and friends. And when they couldn't find him, they went back to Jerusalem to search for him there. Three days later, they finally discovered him in the temple, sitting among the religious teachers, listening to them and asking questions. All who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. His parents didn't know what to think. Son, his mother said to him, Why have you done this to us? Your father and I have been frantic, searching for you everywhere. He says, But why did you need to search? Didn't you know that I must be in my father's house? The New King James says, Didn't you know I must be about my father's business? And he wasn't talking about Joseph. But they didn't understand what he meant. Then he returned to Nazareth with them and was obedient to them. And his mother stored all those things in her heart. Look at verse 52. Jesus grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and all the people. He grew in wisdom. Now what's that tell us? He didn't have the same wisdom at 10 that he did at 12. He was growing in wisdom. He didn't have the same wisdom at 8 that he did at 10. He's growing in wisdom. But what else do you see? For Jesus, at 12 years old, something was changing. His interests were changing. I wonder if it took him three days to find him because they started off at the soccer field or the playground or the video arcade, or the movie theaters. I don't know, they probably didn't have any of those, but you know what I'm saying. They probably started looking at all the places that normal 12-year-olds would have hung out, right? That's not where they found him. What was changing in him? He was in the synagogue. 
He was in church talking to the rabbis. His interests were changing. The things that he was focusing on were changing. Hmm. So we could ask ourselves, where are we spiritually by looking at our interests? Have our interests changed? Interestingly, I don't know if we try to make a rule out of this, um, Jesus' interests were changing at 12 years old. Do we expect enough out of our own children? Just wondering. I'm not going to make a rule. I'll let you pray about that. Maybe we don't, we don't ask enough of our own kids. I don't know. Hmm. Philippians 2.4. I'm in the New Living still. He says, don't look out only for your own interests, but take an interest in others too. So there's a sign of growth. When you start looking beyond your own interests and your own needs, and you start looking at the interests of people around you, the needs of people around you, it's a sign of growth. You're becoming less self-focused or less selfish. The same chapter, jump down to verse 19. Paul says, if the Lord is willing, I hope to send Timothy to you for a visit. Then he can cheer me up by telling me how you are getting along. I have no one else like Timothy who genuinely cares about your welfare. All the others care only for themselves and not for what matters to Jesus Christ. I listened to my message this morning, but that's an interesting verse. What does he say? He says, Timothy is better than the rest because he genuinely cares about your welfare. He said, all the others only care about themselves and not what matters to Jesus. Could I play with that for a moment? What really matters to Jesus? Um, not the things I need? Is that what he's saying? Well, take it out a step bigger. If I'm growing properly, I start focusing more on the needs of the people around me, right? Not just what I need, but what do they need? If the people around me are likewise growing properly, they're doing the same, and at some point the people around me start looking at the things I need. And so I'm beginning to do things to edify people around me. And likewise, people around me are edifying people around them. And somewhere along the way, they edify me. And this community is growing together of edifying each other. And soon find that I don't have to spend a lot of time edifying myself because all the people around me just edify me so much. And I spend my time edifying them. And here's this picture that I see being painted in this verse. What matters most to Jesus? That I edify you, not edify me. And if I'm edifying you and you're edifying me, we both get edified and he's glorified. He says that's how it's supposed to work. But what is that in all of us then? That's a sign of growth, an indicator of maturity. Hmm. I'll close with this here. This morning, why do we grow up then? Some people might say, no, I like it the way I am. I like living as a child. I like just playing games and not having responsibilities. Um, maybe people don't actually say that. But some people have thought it. You know, we, we do tell our kids, enjoy your childhood. <laughs> because when it's over, it's over, right? But are there benefits to growing up? Oh my gosh, absolutely. Children don't get to do stuff. Now they do get to play. There's a lot of stuff children don't get to do. 
Uh, children don't get a lot of responsibility. Children don't get trusted with the more important things. Um, children don't get the promotions or the rewards that go with those responsibilities. Are you with me? Now, we looked at this earlier. I'm going to go back to it, but I've got a specific example this morning. Galatians 4, verse 1, and I'm in the New Living. Think of it this way. If a father dies and leaves an inheritance for his young children, those children are not much better off than slaves until they grow up. Even though they actually own everything their father had, they have to obey their guardians until they reach whatever age their father has set. In the kingdom of God, that's absolutely true. We are children of the king, and we have an inheritance and an access to everything he has. But until we grow up, there's only certain things he can let us have. He can't just give us everything. Um, you think about it, you don't let a child fly an airplane. In, in most cases, you don't let a child drive a car. Now, I know on some farming families, it starts a little sooner. <laughs> you know, you start learning to drive certain implements or different things. I get that. But for the most part, you don't put a child behind the wheel of a car and set them loose on the interstate. You don't give a million dollars to a child. Why? They're not mature enough to handle it. They're not going to know how to handle an airplane. They're not going to know what to do with a million dollars. It's probably not going to last long, you know. Well... That's the case with us, too. There are many things that our Heavenly Father wants to delegate to us. Authority in His kingdom, He wants to give us, but we have to mature to a place where we can handle it, where we can be responsible with authority in His kingdom. We can be responsible with position, and we earn the rewards He wants to give. One example I'm going to use specifically this morning is Revelation. There are certain things in Scripture that He wants us to know and understand, but we're not ready for it. Um, we can make this very easy and very natural, and I apologize to everyone who hates math. Sorry, I'm a numbers guy. But I can give a calculus book to a child, and theoretically they can read every word in that book. But it's not going to mean much. They're still learning adding and subtracting. Um, you can put every differential equation in front of them you want to. They're not going to, they'll read the letters, but they're not going to know what it means. They're not going to know what to do with it. Why? They're still learning elementary stuff. The, the adding, subtracting, multiplying, and dividing. Now, as they learn multiplying and dividing and adding and subtracting, and they work their way up to some basic rules, they start dipping their toes in algebra, and then they work through that and get a little geometry in there, and then you work back to some more algebra, and you keep building all these pieces together. You start getting into some conics and, and some different things that you're working your way up to pre-calculus. And then you keep moving, and you start working into calculus and you start getting introduced to those differential equations and all that fun stuff, you can get there eventually, but there's a whole lot of steps you can't skip or none of it will make sense and you won't get the right answers and you won't do anything with it and it won't mean anything to your life. It's the same way with the Word of God. There are doctrines in the Bible. They're not hidden, but there's a bunch of them that we 
we read right over them in our devotion time and they don't leap off the page and they don't mean what they could mean to us because they're up on the differential equation level and we're still down working on algebra. Some of us got really tripped up with geometry. That's a fun one for some people. But but you see what I'm saying. And it's not that God is withholding from us necessarily. We're just not there yet. But if we'll be faithful and if we keep learning and growing, then all, that's why sometimes things begin to leap off the page because you've grown a little bit. And now it starts to mean a little more. I'll give you a quick example. In Hebrews 5, I'm going to start reading in verse 12. I believe the Apostle Paul... I, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God. You have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes of only milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe or, or a child. Solid food belongs to those who are of full age. That is, those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. So he is classifying Bible doctrines, things that we're supposed to learn. But he divides them here. He says there's milk, which he says is the basic doctrines of God. This is what we're supposed to learn in grade school. These are the elementary doctrines, the things that we should learn when we first start walking with the Lord. But then he also says there's solid food. These are the more advanced doctrines of God that you teach to the adults those that are of full age. And then he gave us some examples. If you keep reading chapter 6, verse 1, he says, therefore, leaving the discussion of elementary principles of Christ, he says, this is grade school stuff. And he gave us some examples. He said, let's go on to perfection, not laying again the foundation of, here's our foundational elementary things, uh, repentance from dead works, faith toward God, the doctrine of baptisms, plural. There's more than one. There's different baptisms. Uh, the doctrine of laying on of hands. The doctrine of the resurrection of the dead. The doctrine of eternal judgment. Now, I don't know. He didn't say that that was all of them. There may be more. But here's a quick example of what he calls milk. Grade school doctrines that... If we've been walking with the Lord any length of time, every doctrine he just listed there, we should have an understanding. Dare I say we should be fluent. Why? He calls those the foundation. It's on the foundation of those doctrines that he can then build deeper truths. And not that they're hidden. I'm not saying there's deep, mysterious stuff hidden in the Old Testament prophecies or even deeper stuff that's not even in the Bible. I'm way out beyond the Bible. I've got the deep revelation of God. No, 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 no. You know, be careful when someone says that. That warning flag. No, no, it's in the Bible. It's all in the Bible. But so many times, it's just differential equations to us. We're reading right over it, not even seeing that it's there. Why? We're, we're still learning the foundational things. But then did you also notice in the Apostle Paul here, um, he knew the deeper things. In fact, he was frustrated. Did you get that sense there? He wanted to teach the deeper things, and he couldn't. For a while there, I used to think the Holy Ghost wouldn't let him teach him. He wanted to teach the deeper things, and the Holy Spirit on the inside is stopping him, saying, no, don't do it. And that may be. But another possibility, it wouldn't have mattered if he even tried. They wouldn't have got it. You can teach that 
calculus all day long, but if they're still working on grade school, it won't mean anything to them. So one or the other or both. But he wants us to learn the deeper ones too, but what's necessary? There are grade school doctrines that we need to study, that we need to learn, that we need to implement and become very fluent and knowledgeable in. Um, this is not my message today, but how do you know when you're getting really knowledgeable about something? When you can explain it to someone else. I've learned that before. There were some things I thought I had a really good knowledge of until I tried to teach it. And I realized, whoa, not as solid as I thought I was. Let's go back and study this some more. When you can teach it to someone else, now you know you're getting a pretty good grasp of it. And again, I'm not necessarily saying pulpit ministry. It could just be life. Conversations with someone. You know, iron sharpens iron. We should have those kind of discussions with each other where we just hash some things out. Even Bible doctrines. That's how you know you're getting a grasp on something when you can explain it to someone else. But back to what I was saying, Galatians 4.2, they have to obey their guardians until they reach whatever age their father set. When it comes to these Bible doctrines, it's not an age. What Clearly in this passage, they'd had enough passage of time that they should have learned all those things by now, and they had not. So it's not a time thing. What is it? It's a do-your-homework thing. Go to class. Take notes. Do your homework. Pass the tests. Get promoted to the next grade. Go to second grade. Go to third grade. How do you get to calculus? you got to start with basic math. It's all the same for us. How do we get to the deeper things? Pass some tests with the basic things. Get really good at them. Get promoted to the next grade. Learn a little more. Get good at it. Implement it in our life. Don't just be a hearer of those things, but a doer. How do they apply to me? How do I work these into how I'm living my life? And whatever the case may be. And then pass some tests. Get promoted to the next grade. And before you know it, you're getting into the deeper things. You're getting into the higher things. You're getting a good working knowledge of the things of God. Amen. It is important and worth it that we grow up. It's only when we pass those tests, or as that passage said, reach the age set by our Father in whatever application. It's only until we do that that He promotes us. And we begin to learn who we were born to be, who He created us to be, who He called us to be, what our place in His kingdom is. Your spirit man will only reach your true potential when you grow and develop to the fullness and stature of Christ. It's worth it to grow up. Amen.